You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. All right, testing, testing. How does that look? Eh, it looks like audio. That's good. First episode in the new studio. Let's go. Content warning. Ronald Reagan. My fellow Americans, thank you for sharing your time with me tonight. On March 23rd, 1983, the Gipper beamed his way into American homes with a timely and important message. The subject I want to discuss with you, peace and national security, is both timely and important. Timely because I've reached a decision which offers a new hope for our children in the 21st century. A decision I'll tell you about in a few minutes. Listen to him tease that announcement. What a showman. What a speaker. What a war criminal. We could spend a lot of time here in the Reagan years, but who would possibly want to do that? Forget the politics. Just think about the sunglasses. For you spring chickens, Reagan was the American president for the end of the Cold War between the USA and USSR, which had been going on, or not going on, since pretty much the end of World War II. The world's two great superpowers poised for almost half a century on the brink of full-blown conflagration. Arguably, there have never been two countries as interested in destroying one another as America and Russia were. Certainly, there have never been two countries as powerful as America and Russia. And each of them spent money and resources as if they were at war with one another and were happy to go to war with other countries or funnel resources to other countries in order to hurt one another. But when it came to actually taking up arms directly against their enemies, nah, nope. And that would seem very mysterious indeed if the answer weren't blindingly, literally blindingly, obvious. After the United States dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Soviet Union went rapidly to work on developing their own nuclear arsenal. And in four years, they succeeded in developing their first atomic weapon. Quite soon, a reality dawned on the superpowers. Each nation was poised, at any moment, to rain fiery destruction upon the other, and said Hellfire was just far enough off that the other would know it in time to blow up the other in turn. It was a pretty funky situation, which, quite luckily, John Nash, a.k.a. Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind, had modeled in the early 50s. Basically, each nation had landed on its best strategy, pointing nuclear apocalypses at the other. If one country backed off, the other would wipe it from the face of the earth. 
but if one country fired, they were both dead. Therefore, they existed in a state of equilibrium, which Hoover Institute analysis Donald Brennan called mutually assured destruction, or MAD. MAD was, well, it's right there, isn't it? It's a crazy, frightening state of play. And just in case you haven't thought about it in a while, it is the precarious state of play we all continue to live in today. It's a truly absurd position. Everyone who is alive today is alive only because they are under constant threat of nuclear annihilation. If that threat dissolved non-uniformly, it would actually manifest the threat. And that is what Reagan went on TV on March 23rd, 1983 to announce. Nevertheless, it will still be necessary to rely on the specter of retaliation, on mutual threat, and that's a sad commentary on the human condition. Reagan had never been hot to trot about MAD, which, again, is understandable until you start considering the alternative. Wouldn't it be better to save lives than to avenge them? Are we not capable of demonstrating our peaceful intentions by applying all our abilities and our ingenuity to achieving a truly lasting stability? I think we are. Indeed, we must. In that primetime address to the nation, President Reagan announced his formal intention to break down MAD, to remove the threat of reciprocal destruction from the Western Hemisphere. After careful consultation with my advisors, including the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I believe there is a way. Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat with measures that are defensive. Let us turn to the very strengths in technology that spawned our great industrial base and that have given us the quality of life we enjoy today. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies? This intention became manifest in 1984 in the form of the Strategic Defense Initiative, better known to the public as Star Wars. You think that's fair use justification for me to play some John Williams? It's probably not, right? Well, how about host planets then? Oh yeah, perfect. This intention became manifest in 1984 in the form of the Strategic Defense Initiative, better known to the public as Star Wars. Wow, that is just practically the same freaking song, isn't it? The goal of SDI, or Star Wars, was simple. To create some way to destroy, detonate, disarm, or otherwise, D-word, intercontinental ballistic missiles. There were a lot of candidates. So many, we could do a whole podcast about them. And almost every one of them has an acronym so clever that it almost collapses under its own linguistic weight. Like the plan to fling pieces of space junk at high speeds via magnetic rail tracks at incoming missiles, which was called Compact High Energy Capacitor Module Advanced Technology Experiment, or Checkmate. There were plans to create a large array of satellites in low orbit that could drop heavy bits of tungsten on top of incoming missiles. This idea has one of my favorite Defense Department codenames of all time, Brilliant Pebbles. There were plans for anti-missile missiles and anti-anti-missile missiles, and so on and so forth, but the greatest attention of all was given to a different class of Star Wars plans. The Death Rays. 
there were several different potential death rays, and they tend to have some pretty cool names too. For instance, the Air Force put their resources into the Mid-Infrared Advanced Chemical Laser, or Miracle, that's without the E. Miracle looked like some kind of big rocket engine attached to a searchlight. It was powered by the reaction between fluorine and deuterium, and it never worked. At Los Alamos, they built the Beam Experiment Aboard Rocket, or BEAR, which proved that a neutral hydrogen particle beam could propagate in the vacuum of space, but what it couldn't do was destroy a missile. NASA had the Low-Powered Atmospheric Compensation Experiment, or LACE, which was basically an attempt to build Archimedes' mirror beam, but in space this time. And then there was the big boy, Project Excalibur. We need some reverb on that. Project Excalibur, which definitely could take over a whole episode, maybe even a two or three parter. But this, this is just the cold open, so we'll try to do it quickly. The idea behind Project Excalibur was to create a network of space-based lasers to destroy incoming ICBMs. But not just any old lasers, X-ray lasers. There was a certain kind of sense to this idea, as an X-ray laser might actually be powerful enough to do the deed, as opposed to the relative failures of Miracle, Lace, and Bear. But physics presented a slight problem. Yes, an X-ray would be far more powerful than a chemical one, but it would also require more power to fire. Like, a lot more power. Like an almost unthinkable amount of power. Almost unthinkable, but not quite. There was one potential power source for the X-ray lasers. A nuclear bomb. A nuclear detonation creates a whole lot of X-rays. Enough to power an X-ray laser. You might have a picture now of Project Excalibur in your head that you'd like me to correct, because that picture seems far too insane to have ever been actually considered. So let me reassure you, no correction is necessary. Project Excalibur would be made up of a series of nuclear bombs orbiting in space surrounded by X-ray lasers. When a nuclear attack was detected, the space bombs would blow up and the resulting X-rays would be focused through the X-ray lasers and aimed at the offending missiles. In addition to all of the problems you're already imagining, Project Excalibur ran up against some others too, like there were already a series of international treaties banning weapons in space, let alone nuclear bombs in space, and limited nuclear test bans back here on Earth, where I keep all my stuff. Underground testing of the concept was a mixed bag, mainly because all of the meters and sensors used had a tendency to be destroyed before they could register results, on account of, you know, the nuclear explosions and all. And when they finally did get a version working, it was quickly discovered that the X-ray beam produced was disappointingly weak. In 1987, the American Physical Society produced the Report to the American Physical Society of the Study Group on Science and Technology of Directed Energy Weapons, or RETAPSTGUDDU. Man, come on, American Physical Society, you've got to up your acronym game. The Air Force is making you look like can-humping, underwear-munching piss stations, or chumps. 
The APS report was pretty fatalistic. It concluded that all of the Star Wars initiatives were either impractical or infeasible, and that not only was no such anti-ballistic missile system going to be built in the next few decades, but that it would probably take a sustained and focused effort of 20 or 30 years just to determine whether such a thing were possible to build at all. Naturally, faced with the reality of the situation, the American military put an end to the projects within the next 10 or 15 years. But forget for a second about the incredible waste of resources, the stunning flights of military fancy, and the fundamental misunderstanding of game theory that accompanied Star Wars. Instead, I'd like to point out an interesting sort of symmetry to Reagan's strategic defense initiative. There he was, in 1983, imagining a way that a death ray might put an end to the threat of nuclear war. When, 40 years earlier, the situation had been the exact opposite. A race between governments, militaries, and rogue inventors to create the death ray had only been stopped by the nuclear bomb Reagan would eventually seek to do away with by means of the death ray it had supplanted. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and this is Death Rays Part 2. Electric Boogaloo. Last time around, we looked at a rather random assortment of death ray makers and fakers, especially Professor Wingard and his nameless force, and Harry Grindle Matthews. And then things eh, got a little out of control, and instead of talking about other death ray inventors, I got sidetracked by a submarine conspiracy theory, a doctor who inserted monkey testicles into the ball sacks of American millionaires, and I don't know, what else was there? An anti-gravity car? An abusive Zen master? The episode got a little out of hand, is what I'm saying. So. We're introducing some guardrails onto part two to try to keep me from roaming into whatever flower patch smells interesting at the moment. This time, we're going to try to break the remaining death ray stories into chapters. Chapter one, what the F ray. Harry Grindle Matthews got the British death ray craze stratospheric, but Harry himself was probably inspired by an Italian inventor by the name of Giulio Ulivi. Ulivi was born near Florence in 1881. There isn't much to say about him or his family. The first time his name comes up in the record after the announcement of his birth is in 1901, when he was conscripted into the Italian military as a paramedic. After his year of mandated service, he returned to Florence and entered the Technical Institute of Florence, from which he graduated in 1905. Having gained an interest in electricity, he then traveled to Berlin, to attend the Technical University at Charlottenburg. In 1907, he matriculated out of there and returned again to Florence, but he found the opportunities in electrical engineering there wanting and soon headed off to Paris, where he rented an abandoned barn just outside of the city, turning it into his laboratory. It isn't long after establishing himself there that he came up with the initial idea for his death ray, but he also worked on some other inventions which don't require you to swallow your disbelief as hard, so we might as well tick those off first. From his barn lab, he became fascinated in automobiles and grew to dislike the speed traps French police were setting for them. At the time, there was no real way for either the cop or the speeder to demonstrate how fast a car had been going, so courts 
just took the police's word for it when they said someone had been breaking the law. Imagine that. In response, Ulivi developed a new kind of speedometer for cars, which didn't just show how fast a car was going, but how fast it had been going, creating a record of the vehicle's speed, which the driver could present to prove that they hadn't violated the limit. In this period, he's also supposed to have built a working airplane, although I have my doubts about that. There's photographic evidence of Alevi with his plane, so yeah, he almost certainly did build one. Whether it was his own design or not, and whether it was capable of flight, is less obvious. But the main thing that's curious to me is the name of Alevi's plane, the Maria, seemingly named for the woman he fell in love with and married years after it was built. I don't know what to make of this, but there it is. Airplanes aside, Ulivi also seems to have built during this time a motorized plow or two for some French farmers, which didn't set the world on fire but maybe kept him eating, and worked on his other big idea, the F-ray. Ulivi didn't tell the story of the discovery of his F-ray until long after it had already become famous and infamous in the press, but the version he eventually settled on went roughly like this. He'd been experimenting with using ultraviolet light to sterilize water in his barn when a stable boy from down the road ran in asking him to come take a look at the horses. Following the boy, Ulivi discovered that every time a horse put its hoof to the ground, electric sparks flew out. Believing his experiment and the sparks to be connected, Ulivi returned to his lab and shut off his generator. And at that very moment, the sparking stopped. That night, when everyone else had left the area, Ulivi began playing with his generator and, in his words, learning how to direct the rays from it. Ulivi said that he finally realized the destructive power of his accidental invention when he aimed it at the gas meter in his lab and the whole barn promptly exploded. He said that he only survived by some miracle, with an E at the end. This story contradicts the version with the electrical horseshoes, since the stables that held the horses were located near Ulivi's second lab, which he supposedly built only after he'd exploded the first one, but eh, whatever. On August 5th, 1913, Giulio Ulivi showed off his discovery to the world. As reported the next month in the New York Times, a device to end wars. Vieux-Sumer, France. Tuesday, August 5th, 1913, 7.30 a.m. The gray, dismal day and a cold wind raised whitecaps on the waves rolling into the beach across from where the bearded man sat at a cafe, making a perfect backdrop to his spirits. Vieille-sur-Mer was normally a popular vacation place, but most tourists wisely chose to remain indoors this morning. In two and a half hours, Either he would be as famous as Thomas Edison or a complete disgrace. If his test failed, the name Ulivi would be a joke among the French military hierarchy. A number of very important people in the French military were coming to view the demonstration of the F-Ray. Since the French wanted the demonstrations carried out offshore on a ship, Ulivi needed a vessel of some sort. He was able to persuade the French owner of a yacht called the Lady Henriette with an English captain to lend the ship. The great test was set for 10 a.m. this morning. Yesterday, he packed up his equipment and took it to a field north of town for a final test. 
The detonator worked perfectly, using only a very small quantity, less than one-tenth ounce of explosive, at a distance of 550 yards. When he pressed the switch on the F-ray, there was a very satisfying crack, and a puff of smoke ran from the demolition site. The amount of explosive was immaterial. The F-ray would detonate any quantity, large or small. The test, according to Captain Jean-Louis Renard, was a jaw-dropping success. Ulivi produced 10 canisters stuffed with TNT and floated with cork, which he placed out in the water via the yacht's dinghy. Then he rode back to the yacht while the French military representatives looked on from shore via telescopes. Ulivi unveiled his device, which looked like a five-foot-tall drum made of polished mirrors and dotted with inscrutable dials and switches and levers. Ulivi pointed the mirror out towards the mines and began flipping switches. After the second switch, the first mine detonated. Ulivi continued working the complicated mechanism as the nine other devices rapidly exploded in turn. When all of them were detonated, Ulivi turned to the brass with a smile and asked, Well, gentlemen, might this device be of interest to the general staff? Later that day, Ulivi showed that he could do the same trick on land, blowing up a crate of ammunition which was hidden behind a metal and cement wall. The official observers were initially amazed, but in the next few days the shine began to dull. When they met again with Ulivi four days later, they'd found their skepticism and had a lot of questions for the inventor. With the time to think, Lieutenant Doriak had realized that Olivi had contradicted himself on several occasions when explaining his device. During the initial aquatic experiment, he had said that the F-ray beam was reflected by metal, and the metal mirror was therefore used to aim it. But when he exploded the ammo behind the metal wall, he had boasted the opposite, that the F-ray could pass through any metal object effortlessly. Under questioning, Ulivi became more and more flustered and contradictory. Finally, Dioriak suggested that they retry the experiments, but with the French military furnishing the explosives themselves instead of Ulivi. Ulivi, for some reason, didn't like that idea and quickly concocted a growing list of excuses for why his device would not work that day. Or the next day. Or the next. Finally, the French team concluded that the F-ray that had so enamored them a week before was, in fact, total garbage. A swindle. They were almost certainly right, of course, but Ulivi, much like Professor Wingard before him and Harry Grendel Matthews after, had a specific band of opportunity. Newspapers were happy to report only on the successes of his experiments, while the governments to whom he demonstrated were pleased to recount the failures. But the speed and distance of the former reporters were much greater than the latter. So Ulivi could, if careful, ride the media reports of his invention from nation to nation just ahead of the more sober, um, fraud accusations. In England, he got an official meeting with the British Admiralty, who initially signaled interest and then, quite suddenly, turned their backs. There seems to have been some interest in the U.S., but soon enough the Times was reporting that he was a confidence artist, and that seems to have put an end to that. Eventually, Ulivi had to return to his homeland, where he figured the Italians would be more welcoming to one of their own. It took him the better part of a year, but he finally arranged a demonstration of his F-ray in Florence, in front of Admiral Pietro Fornari. Things get a little mysterious here. Most people who have looked into the F-ray phenomenon eventually concluded that Ulivi was boring holes within his TNTC mines and stuffing them with sodium, which he then covered up with thick wool. 
This allowed him to time out the approximate point at which the water would soak through the wool, hit the sodium, ignite, and detonate the dynamite. But according to the official government report of the Florence experiment, Ulivi had nothing to do with the building of the mines that day. In fact, he was escorted out of town during the time they were built and laid in the river. Only when a smoke signal was given was Ulivi allowed to return to the test site and try his F-ray, which worked as spectacularly as it had during the first test in France, only without the creeping skepticism days later. Indeed, Fernari seemed genuinely impressed with Giulio Ulivi. Right up until the point he told the Admiral he was in love with his teenage daughter Maria. Back to that in a minute. The higher-ups in the Italian Navy received the ebullient report on Ulivi's F-rays with trepidation. They'd heard about the failure in France and the rumors that the inventor was a flim-flam man, so they wanted more testing and a more thorough explanation of the F-ray that they could take to some Italian scientists for scrutiny. The explanation Ulivi offered was, uh, dizzying. Nearly incoherent. But apparently the experts found it satisfying with the exception of Italy's greatest scientific mind, the inventor of wireless radio, Guillermo Marconi, who had plans for a death ray of his very own. Back to that in a bunch of minutes. Shortly after the triumphant Florence test, Giulio Olivi asked Admiral Pietro Fornari for his teenage daughter Maria's hand in marriage. Fornari was taken aback and voiced concerns about her age and the short amount of time they had known each other, just about a month. He was also concerned that if his daughter married this inventor, her entire future would rise and fall on his invention. When he was thinking of the F-ray only in terms of his nation's military future, he was more than satisfied with its potential. But once it was ready to be attached to the future of his own family, he got a little more skeptical. He struck an agreement that he would give his blessing to the marriage if and when, and only if and when, Ulivi replicated the success of the experiment and proved the worth of his device once and for all to the Italian military. Ulivi agreed. Now with his marital future riding on the result, Ulivi got ready for the biggest demonstration of his life. The bombs were supplied by a trio of Milanese investors who were interested in buying a stake in the invention. But they insisted that they build the bombs themselves, far away from Ulivi. What they came up with were three pounds of black powder divided into thirds and shoved in biscuit tins. When the time came to detonate them, Ulivi was nowhere to be found. Instead, he sent a letter to the testing ground saying that the induction coil on his F-ray machine had broken and he needed a day to get a new one. But the next day, he failed to show up again. And that wasn't all. Maria was missing, too. They had run off together and eloped, Admiral Fernari soon learned. The word came from Reverend Guido Alfani, who was in this story in a whole bunch of weird ways. Alfani wasn't just a priest, but also the director of Jimenez Observatory in Florence, a respected astronomer and inventor and an early booster of Ulivi's F-rays. He was also one of the men whom Ulivi, the military, and the Milanese investors had agreed to have build the bombs that Ulivi ran away from without detonating. And finally, he was Maria Lucia Fornari's confessor. She came to him to say that she was running away with Giulio, 
and Reverend Alfani was quick to tell her not to marry him. Not just because it was against her father's wishes, the law, and the Catholic covenant to elope like this, but because, and about this statement he gave no more detail, Julia Ulivi couldn't be trusted. The Efray was a fraud, we can say pretty confidently. But it wasn't the fraud that ruined Ulivi's career. Instead, it was the elopement and the scandal it sent across Italian high society. Eventually, he made peace with Admiral Fernari, and he and Maria agreed to a proper Catholic wedding. But the Efray never again found the same level of acclaim. Instead, the media seemed to conclude that since he had tarnished his reputation with the elopement, his invention must be a hoax. And that very bad logic, leading coincidentally to the correct result, is why your teachers made you show your work in geometry class. And why I got that B-, which I accurately yet incorrectly knew happened because that teacher hated me. I'm throwing that in to test whether my parents still listen. Yes, I know you don't remember that happening, Mom. It's called dramatic license. When World War I broke out, Ulivi seems to have hoped his F-ray machine would finally get the credit it deserved. Which it did. The credit it deserved being none. Careful how you word your wishes, Ulivi. He was drafted into military service working in a medical lab where he was severely injured in an undetailed accident. The F-ray saw a few more experiments, all of which followed the same pattern we've already seen. Spectacular initial promise, growing skepticism, eventual fraud. The rest of his life was, well, just about as dark and alarming as what we've seen. He invented a radium-based glow-in-the-dark paint, what could go wrong, and a 3D film projector which supposedly caused a potential investor to die of a heart attack when he showed off a movie of a train driving towards the camera. He fell in with Mussolini for a while, and fell out with Mussolini for a while, and as long as nobody had any strong feelings one way or the other about Mussolini, that should have been okay, but something happened that turned fascism into a bit of a hot-button issue, I can't remember what at the moment, I'll try to remind myself to look it up later, and Olivi decided it was time to change his name and move to Belgium, where surely his association with Italian fascism would never come up again. Now calling himself Giulio Olivi Planta, he took a post at the Royal Museum in Brussels, where he was seemingly charged with inventing archaeological devices to detect and or restore metal. Maria refused to follow, and their marriage fell apart. During World War II, the Belgians imprisoned him as a fascist, then the Nazis took over Brussels and imprisoned him as an anti-fascist, and then the Allies liberated Brussels and imprisoned him as a fascist again. He died there, in Brussels after the war, in 1948, a broke and broken miser. Shortly before his death, he was visited by his nephew, Fausto Fernari, who said that he had the F-ray machine with him in his apartment. But after his death, it was nowhere to be found among his possessions, leading to speculation of a conspiracy theory that sounds very much like another one we'll hear about down the line. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient 
online environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutical matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, relationship, traumas, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their own mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. You're the hiring expert for your company, and what you really need is help making your shortlist of qualified candidates. You need a hiring partner who helps make your life easier. You need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview, all on Indeed. Get your quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster, only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications, and schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connection with and hiring the right talent fast and easy. Tools like Indeed Instant Match give you quality candidates whose resume on Indeed fit your job description immediately and Indeed skills tests that on average reduce hiring time by 27%. You can choose from more than 130 skills tests or add your own, then add your must-have requirements so you only pay for applications that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash The Constant. That's Indeed.com slash The Constant, one word. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 2. 
the non-denial denial. After the conclusion of World War I, with both Julio Ulibi and Harry Grindel Matthews pretty thoroughly debunked, the official position of most governments was that death rays were silly. Make-believe. Impossible. But, unofficially, there was a different sense. As World War II crept over the horizon, the militaries of the world began to worry that maybe there was a death ray out there, and if so, no one could afford to be left without it. In secret, all the martial powers had started trying to develop their own death rays, just in case. In the US of A, death ray plans were handled by the Office of Scientific Research and Development, which was set up to come up with zanier ways to wage the wars of the future, like freeze bombs, stink bombs, decoy night monsters, and at least four death ray proposals. The scientists at OSRD don't seem to have much cared for or believed in the prospects of a death ray, but the agency's whole mandate was to try out Hail Mary plays, which means you can find a lot of grumbling reports written and buried by people who were doing their all to insinuate they had better things to do. The best of these reports comes from Richard Tolman, chemist, mathematician, and co-chair of OSRD. In looking to the claims of George Finch and John Roberts, who demonstrated their death ray by killing five ducks in midair, Tolman quickly deduced that the men had prepped the dead ducks by feeding them strychnine-soaked grain. The United Kingdom was already used to being approached by death ray makers, after Harry Grindle Matthews and the many snake oil ray salesmen that had followed him. By the 1930s, the Ministry of Defense had codified a standard test. Any prospective death ray merchant had to first show that they could kill a sheep from a hundred yards away. If they did, they would win a thousand pounds and the right to move forward with their invention. Nobody ever managed that feat, naturally. In fact, I can't find any record to suggest anyone even tried. It's possible that the sheep shooting standard was put in place mainly to dissuade rather than induce. Whether they wanted the input of outsider crackpots or not, the British were still very interested, if not hopeful, that they might put together a death ray in-house. By 1934, the defense ministry could see that trouble was on its way. Germany was building up its military, Italy was invading Ethiopia, and Japan was attacking into China. It was only a matter of time before England got pulled in, and the ministry understood that this meant real trouble. Germany had a major leg up in avionics, producing better planes in greater numbers than the UK could hope to match and the anti-aircraft guns on British shores weren't up to the task of taking down the high-flying bombers of the Luftwaffe. They needed a secret weapon, something that could swat down invading air attacks, either by stopping engines or killing pilots. In other words, they needed exactly what Harry Grindel Matthews had been pretending to sell them. They needed a death ray. In charge of the effort was a new bureaucratic council, the Committee for the Scientific Survey of Air Defense, or CASAD. CASAD, CASADly, didn't have any luck building a ray of their own, but in a desperate last-grasp chance, Henry Wimperts reached out to Robert Watson Watt, operator of the nation's radio research station. The question was pretty straightforward. Did Watt think a death ray could be built? Watt did not. But, understanding the gravity of the question, he decided to make sure. He asked his research assistant, Arnold Wilkins, to, quote, K-1 
Calculate the amount of radio frequency power which should be radiated to raise the temperature of 8 pints of water from 98 degrees Fahrenheit to 105 at a distance of 5 kilometers and a height of 1 kilometer. In other words, how much power would it take to burn a German pilot alive? Wilkins set to work on the problem but quickly realized what Watt had anticipated. The answer was much too much. But while he was figuring out that he couldn't use radio waves to boil skybound Nazis, he managed to figure out what he could use them to do. If he shot radio waves at a plane, he couldn't down the plane or the pilot. But he noticed that the radio receivers picked up noise, like the radio waves were bouncing off the plane. Could that be useful? He asked Watt. And that is how Watt and Wilkins invented radar. Very cool but also not a death ray. Thanks for playing, Britain. The most promising of the World War II military death rays was the Kugo out of Imperial Japan. Japan got the idea from reports in the New York Times of a new teleforce weapon being developed by Nikola Tesla, we'll get to it, I promise, and put up 2 million yen to see if they could make one of their own. Yoji Ito was one of Japan's most prominent engineers with a long history of making advances in radar parallel to Watt and Wilkins. His particular expertise was in magnetrons and microwaves, which he initially put to use during the war developing rangefinders for Japanese ships and the first airborne rangefinder, which turned the Japanese Air Force's reconnaissance plane Gekko into a bona fide night fighter. But when the higher-ups in the Imperial military read about Tesla's Teleforce weapon, we'll get to it, I promise, they moved Ito away from that actually useful work and onto the secret plan for a Japanese death ray. Yoji Ito and his small team began trying to reverse-engineer the Serbian's invention based on available reporting, but quickly concluded that Tesla's claims were implausible. We'll get to it, I promise. But with his expertise on microwaves and the large stockpile of magnetrons he'd been working on for the last few years, Ito had an idea for a device that might actually do the trick. A gigantic microwave beam emitter. Five and a half years later, the Japanese army had the Kugo, an actual working death ray. Big asterisks, ahoy! First of all, the Kugo was quite large and very heavy, and more importantly, it ate a lot of power. But if you had the electricity for it, and could get it pointed at the right target for a while, it could live up to its name. When aimed at mice, rabbits, and hedgehogs, the Kugo could kill its target in the blink of 10 or 15 minutes worth of eyes, as long as said mouse, rabbit, or hedgehog was within 30 or so feet and held perfectly still for the duration of the attack. Tests with monkeys were requested, but apparently by 1943 the Japanese government was suffering from some sort of monkey shortage, and I can tell that if I go looking there's going to be a story there, but for once, I'm just going to let it lie. The lab made plans to build an even larger Kugo that they estimated could kill a sheep, but only after 10 minutes of holding it in place and only at 30 yards. So the British test standard remained unchallenged. Anyway, the big Mamajama Kugo didn't manage to get to production before VJ Day. The existing Kugo was confiscated by General MacArthur and given over to OSRD, who were suitably unimpressed. And that was the end of that. The USSR naturally had plans for their own death ray, but there isn't much to say about that other than that it didn't work either. Germany, whew, 
Germany, whose death ray propaganda had started all this brinksmanship going, didn't actually do a lot of work on making their own death ray. Most of the effort they did approve was done through subcontractors, most of whom were interested in a nobler kind of death ray. Dr. Heinz P. Schmelemeyer was a German physicist who formed a private arms company in 1937, probably to avoid military service and smokescreen his involvement with the Communist Party from the Nazi government. By all accounts, Schmelemeyer remained committed to communism through the end of his life and despised the Nazi regime, but was able to use his scientific and entrepreneurial prowess to protect himself and some associates throughout the war. In 1943, he learned that Dr. Richard Gans, a fellow German physicist and ethnic Jew who had been stripped of every appointment and forced to clear air raid rubble, was about to be transported to the camps. In order to save him, Schmelemeyer dreamed up a harebrained plan to build for Hitler a nuclear accelerator-powered death ray he called the Rayatron. But to do it, he would need the help of Richard Gans, as well as several other Jews and political dissidents. He never succeeded in making a death ray, but through his Rayaton plan, Schmelemeyer was able to make some important advances in particle accelerators and, more importantly, save Gans and a handful of others from the death chambers. Norwegian nuclear physicist Rolf Widero was approached by a couple of Luftwaffe officers who requested he build them a death ray in the style of Schmelemeyer's Rayotron. Rolf agreed, as if he had any choice, and was able to secure the release of his brother Vigo, a pilot and resistance fighter, in exchange for yet another impractical nuclear death beam non-starter. After the failure to deliver by Schmelemeyer, Weiderow, and a German physicist by the name of Scheibold, whose lab was bombed by the Allies in December of 1943, the Nazis lost all taste for death rays. Hitler was, among a few other things, very impatient, and as the war began to turn against them, he was no longer interested in earmarking resources for any military program that wouldn't bear fruit in less than six months. Nazi labor minister Robert Ley had heard about the various X-ray beams and such, and pushed very hard for an official military program to build one. Eventually, Albert Speer gave in to his demands on the condition that Ley, a political appointee with no technical training or knowledge, head up the project himself. According to Speer, the idea was not so much to build a death ray as to get Lay out of his hair. Lay headed up his own effort with the help of an outmoded high school physics textbook. After the war, he committed suicide rather than face trial at Nuremberg. What a shame. While it was probably not as effective as Japan's Kugo, and not as accidentally innovative as Britain's radar, the most interesting World War II-era death ray story, for my money, belongs to Italy. And that's Chapter 3. Marconi. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. In June of 1936, Raquel Mussolini, wife to Benito Mussolini, wrote about a peculiar incident in her diary. I told Benito that afternoon I would have gone to Ostia to control the work they were doing in a small real estate. My husband smiled and replied, Between Rome and Ostia, between 3 and 3.30, you'll see something that will surprise you. Around 3 o'clock, I left Villa Torulonia, our residence in the capital, to go by car to Ostia as I was expected. I was alone with the driver, a plainclothes policeman. During the first part of the route, everything went well. On the motorway, although it was in operation for several years, there was not much traffic. At that time, not everyone could afford a car. We were about halfway when the engine stopped. The driver got out, grumbling, and hid his head under the bonnet of the car. Opened, saw, tried, blew some tubes, nothing to do. The engine would not start. Another car, marching in our direction, stopped a little further. The driver got out and went himself to put his nose into the engine. Then, as happens everywhere in similar cases, began to discuss with his fellow sufferer, that is, with my driver. A few hundred yards ahead, but in the opposite direction, other cars had stopped, and even motorcycles. I became curious and thought about the talk I'd had with my husband. I looked at the clock. 310. To tell the truth, I did not understand anything, but one thing was certain. About us, on both lanes of the Rome Ostia, for a few hundred meters, everything motorized had broken down. There were something like 30 vehicles, all types, not one that would work. I called the driver and told him, wait until 3.30. If the car will not start, call a mechanic. At 3.30, I asked him to try again. Of course, the engine started the first time. The other drivers who were close to us, seeing our car, did the same thing. Everything worked as if nothing had happened. That evening at dinner, noting that my husband watched with a smile, I told him the tale of our collective breakdown, arousing the curiosity and questions of all. Vittorio and Bruno, who were pilots, spoke in technical terms. According to Romano and Anna Maria, instead, I had dreamed it. Neither was an explanation to this mystery. Finally, my husband said, Mom was right. This afternoon they did an experiment in some parts of the Rome-Ostia highway. She herself has seen the results. That said, my husband stopped talking and refused to answer my questions. Later, when they were in private, Benito let his wife in on the details. The Italian military was in the middle of testing a new weapon. Mussolini called it the Raggio della Morte, or Death Ray. And its inventor was the most esteemed scientist in all of Italy. Guillermo Giovanni Maria Marconi was born in Bologna in 1874, the son of Italian aristocrat Giuseppe Marconi and Irish woman Annie Jameson of the Jameson Whiskey Jamesons. Now that is some dinner party trivia for you. His primary and secondary education was all done through private tutors on the family estate. He didn't set foot in an actual brick and mortar school until electrophysicist Augusto Rai allowed him to audit his class at the University of Bologna. 
Ever since Luigi Galvani, who you might recall from the episode Shocking, and if you don't, let me just say, I think that is the best episode I've ever made, so you should go find it if not. Uh, ever since Luigi Galvani, the University of Bologna had been known and had tried to be known as the forefront of electrical research. At the time the 18-year-old Marconi started informally attending, that research was in the emission and detection of electromagnetic radiation, which at the time was better known as Hertzian waves, though, thanks to Marconi, not for long. James Clerk Maxwell, who I believe we talked about in the episode Reductio Ad Absurdum, and if we didn't, we should have, so sorry, was the first person to key into the weird coincidence that electrical and magnetic fields both traveled at the speed of light in a vacuum. Maxwell didn't think it was a coincidence at all. He realized through this that magnetism, electricity, and light were related, if not downright identical. Electricity and magnetism were, in fact, electromagnetism, and light an electromagnetic waveform. In his equations proving this, he happened to make a prediction. In 1800, William Herschel, who we haven't yet talked about in an episode, but we certainly will sometime because he was father of one of the craziest ideas I can think of, William Herschel had split a beam of sunlight through a prism, creating a little rainbow. At the bottom of the prismatic spray was the red light, the longest wave of light known. But Herschel got real clever and placed a thermometer below the red spot, where there didn't appear to be any light shining at all. After a few minutes, the thermometer began to tick up, and Herschel realized that there was a band of light invisible to the naked human eye, infrared. Maxwell's equations showed that if light were an electromagnetic wave, there should be another, even longer wave below infrared. 79 years later, Heinrich Hertz had proved Maxwell's equations were correct when he became the first person to produce and observe these electromagnetic waves. As it happened, Augusto Rai had studied with Hertz and was in Bologna working on these still very novel electromagnetic waves. He wasn't alone in that. Studying and experimenting with these waves was very much the rage at the time. But these studies were all very academic. Nobody thought there was much practical use to them aside from Guillermo Marconi. The blockage was understandable. Most people working in electromagnetism figured that since these Hertz waves were essentially infra-infrared waves, they probably behaved roughly the same way that light did, which meant that they were fascinating, scientifically speaking, but utterly useless otherwise. They didn't create heat, they didn't create visible light, but the faulty assumption was that they traveled like light anyway, i.e., they were absorbed and reflected by opaque materials and surfaces. And that is the part that Marconi figured out was wrong. After a couple semesters with Rai, Marconi began doing his own Hertz ray experiments in the family attic with the help of the family butler, Mignani, which is a graphic novel just waiting to happen. Together, the young Marconi and the butler Mignani, maybe it should be an Ishiguro novel actually, built a lightning detector that rang an electric bell when it picked up the radio waves ahead of storm systems. From this, he realized that he could create a remote bell ringer from the same principle, with a radio transmitter replacing the thunderstorm. From there, it was just a hop, skip, and a jump to get to wireless transmission of Morse code, and then straight up to radio itself. Marconi quickly became one of the world's most successful and famous inventors, right up there with Edison or Nikola Tesla. We're getting to it, I promise. Unfortunately, he also became one of the world's most successful and famous fascists, and he was absolutely smitten by Mussolini. 
From his private laboratory yacht, the Elettra, he apparently began to work on the Raggio della Morte, although according to most sources, Marconi referred to it as a Raggio della Pace, or Peace Ray. Marconi believed that in the coming war, which everyone could see was fast on its way, victory would belong to the party not with the most men, but with the worst weapons. And like Alfred Nobel before him, he thought that if he could create the worst weapon of them all, he could end war before it began. In the 1930s, when Marconi was working on his peace-slash-death ray, he was being pulled in those two directions at once, to one side by Mussolini, and to the other by Pope Pius XI, who was interested in radio himself. Marconi had constructed a special radio broadcaster at the Vatican so that the Pope could talk to the world, and even introduced the pontiff the first time out, saying, With the help of God, who places so many mysterious forces of nature at man's disposal, I have been able to prepare this instrument, which will give to the faithful of the entire world the joy of listening to the voice of the Holy Father. The two were fast friends ever after, and Pope Pius will be one of the last people to speak with Marconi before his death. According to both Mr. and Mrs. Mussolini, the Pope objected to the creation of a death ray and talked Marconi out of tinkering with it any further, but the truth of that is far from clear. As is the Mrs.'s report of being stopped on the highway that summer afternoon. It seems difficult to believe, and yet there are other reports of Italian officers witnessing demonstrations where Marconi stopped the engines of ships and planes. According to Adelmo Landini, Marconi's assistant and radio operator, as well as an inventor in his own right, Marconi had on board the Elettra a secret inner laboratory that no one, not even Landini, was allowed into. Landini implies that Marconi might have been working on a microwave ray inside it, although he vacillates on whether the ray would have been used as a large-scale weapon or as a very small-scale antimicrobial medical tool. After a series of heart attacks in the summer of 1937, Marconi died in Rome. Radio stations, telegraphs, post offices, and even ships on the sea marked his passing with two minutes of radio silence. Three days before his death, he had met again with Pope Pius. Some say the Pope came to him as a friend, others as a confessor, and still others as someone literate in radio technology. Some have even suggested that it's possible he needed someone who could be all three, someone to whom Marconi could confess his death ray sins. Unlikely, but who knows? There isn't a whole lot we can say for sure about Marconi's work on the ray, not even what to call it. But there is one thing we do know about it. It really, really, really pissed off Tesla. Chapter 4, Tesla at Last. On January 7th, 1943, Alice Monahan, a maid at the Hotel New Yorker, accidentally sparked an international incident when, after two days of silence, she decided to defy the Do Not Disturb sign hanging from the door of room 3327. Inside, she found the body of an 86-year-old man, naked but for his socks, sitting in a chair, dead. Nikola Tesla was gone, and the world was left to wonder if his secrets would follow him. I would estimate that there are roughly 3,000 podcast episodes about Tesla for you to find 
with two or three new ones added daily. He's frequently described as the world's greatest forgotten inventor or the most underappreciated genius of his time. One might point out that for someone so forgotten and underappreciated, he sure is talked about a whole lot, but only if one didn't mind getting pelted by weirdo fanboys on Twitter. If I sound a little circumspect about the legacy of Nikola Tesla, it's only because I am. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Tesla was brilliant, innovative, a radical thinker who in several ways changed the world, most importantly through alternating current, the discovery that famously put him on the wrong side of his powerful and vindictive mentor, Thomas Edison. But Tesla's legacy, at least in current pop culture, seems to be far less about what he did than what he might have done. To give you an idea of the mystique surrounding him, consider the episode of the Discovery Channel's Ancient Aliens, in which a series of... <clears throat> experts, rapidly proposed that Tesla was either a time traveler, an alien, or an avatar of the gods in just over 90 seconds. The difficult truth about Tesla is that, in addition to his undeniable genius, he also suffered from severe mental illness, especially in his later days. And, like so many of the famous inventors of his time, he was given to bold and improbable exclamations in the press that were, at best, exaggerations, and at worst, full-on scams. So, rather than go through the truly fascinating but often told story of Tesla's troubled genius, his fights with Edison and Westinghouse, the myriad accomplishments of his youth, we're just going to focus on his later days, when things got tragic and weird and sad, which happens, not by coincidence, to also be the time of his death ray, alternatively called, like Marconi's, a peace ray or the Teleforce. Tesla's fortunes shifted almost at the stroke of the 20th century. As the bell chimed on 1900, his money began to run out, and he took up long-term residence in a series of New York hotels, staying at one after another as long as it took for the bill to run up and the goodwill to run out. In the first decade, he focused mainly on ideas surrounding the production and application of ozone, which he hoped could be used medicinally or else as an antibacterial agent, but nothing much came of this work. He returned to his wheelhouse in the 19-teens, electricity. In truth, even in the field where he was most expert, his ideas had often been hit or miss. Now, they were almost exclusively miss. Under the baseless theory that electrical currents improved intelligence, he tried to sell a system to the New York public schools to wire classrooms with low-frequency electromagnetic fields to improve student performance. He proposed a system for submarine detection through high-frequency electrical radiation that bore a strong superficial resemblance to Watt and Wilkins' radar, but he got stuck on a few faulty assumptions that kept him from ever making progress. By this time, Tesla was a near-total recluse, and forewent almost all human contact in favor of a new social circle, the Pigeons of Manhattan. He spent up to four hours a day in the park feeding them, and eventually turned his hotel windows into makeshift coops so that he could care for them around the clock. This too got him removed from several of his residences, along with his inability to pay. He became particularly obsessed with one pure white pigeon on which he spent some $4,000 treating injuries. In 1922, he said that she had flown into his room to tell him she was dying, and that as she passed, she sprayed him with a bright white light from her eyes. Afterwards, he remarked of the bird, I loved that pigeon as a man loves a woman, and she loved me. 
As long as I had her, there was a purpose to my life. It was not a great time to be Nikola Tesla. After the fourth hotel kicked him out onto the street, the Westinghouse company took pity on him, giving him a small monthly stipend and paying for him to stay at the New Yorker for the rest of his life. He got a small boost of spirit on his 75th birthday in 1931, when a group of friends and colleagues organized a large celebration of his life and work. He even got the cover story of Time magazine. It was such a success, both at rousing his spirits and garnering publicity, that Tesla turned it into an annual event. Between 1932 and 1937, he held regular birthday press conferences at which he showed off a series of increasingly improbable discoveries and inventions. At the first birthday extravaganza, he announced to the press that he was months away from completing a perpetual motion machine that ran on the passive power of cosmic rays. The next year, he said he had built a camera that projected the inner thoughts of its subject, as well as a new kind of radio that beamed signals directly into the brains of individualized listeners. And then, at the third birthday unveiling, in 1934, he announced his death ray, the Teleforce. Like Grindel Matthews and Marconi, whom he despised, Tesla too objected to the term death ray. For one, he considered its purpose to be peace rather than destruction. The Teleforce would be a defensive weapon, protecting nations from aerial, naval, or ground-based invasion, but its size and power needs precluded it from being used aggressively. He was also quick to scoff at the ray part. He corrected those that called it a ray by quite reasonably and correctly noting the inverse square law. A ray would diminish too quickly over distance to ever be usable as an effective ranged weapon quite reasonably and correctly, but he probably emphasized the inverse square law mostly in order to get a dig on Marconi, whom he despised. Anyway, the Teleforce wouldn't be a ray, but as the New York Sun put it, a beam of matter moving at high velocity. The beam, said the Sun, would be projected on land from powerhouses set 200 miles or so apart and would provide an impenetrable wall for a country in time of war. Anything with which the ray came in contact would be destroyed. Planes would fall, armies would be wiped out, and even the smallest country might so ensure security against which nothing could avail. The New York Times said that the death beam could take out 10,000 planes at a distance of 250 miles in one sweep. To consider Tesla's teleforce claims, we need to envision a long, arcing continuum of explanations. On one dark and remote end, barely this size of the Earth's curvature, is the improbable chance that the man who invented the 20th century also actually managed to create this extraordinary device. Now, way on the other side of the scale, which is also quite far away but plainly visible, is the real possibility that Tesla was just fully off his rocker. The long span between those is made up of innumerable similar possibilities that mix in various proportions the germ of a genius, the ravings of a madman, and the ploy of a desperate person. The genius and the madness already thoroughly known, we can focus our attention on the ploy. Not long after announcing his teleforce, Tesla began shopping for buyers, including J.P. Morgan, the Croatian government, and his old colleagues at Westinghouse Electric. He even managed to finagle $25,000 out of the Soviet government for his plans. Yet, for the next few years, not much more was heard about the Teleforce. 
At his 1937 birthday press conference, he was asked how the death beam experiment was coming along and responded, But it is not an experiment. I have built, demonstrated, and used it. Only a little time will pass before I can give it to the world. That same year, Tesla left the Hotel New Yorker late one night to go and feed his pigeons. A few blocks away from the hotel, he was struck by a taxicab. The severity of the accident is not known because Tesla refused to visit a doctor, but he never fully recovered. For the last six years of his life, he was even more isolated and beleaguered than before. But among many other questionable claims he made in those waning days were further statements about his death ray, which he even offered to furnish to the American government in 1940. They didn't respond. He spent weeks at a time held up in his room, seeing no one, with the Do Not Disturb sign across the door handle. Until finally, on January 7, 1943, Alice Monahan disregarded it and entered to find his 81-year-old corpse sitting at the table with only his socks on. The medical examiner concluded he had died of a heart attack. The tricky thing about Tesla at the time of his death is the same thing that's tricky about him all these decades later. Yes, he appeared to be partially full of shit, and his many outrageous claims seemed to be a mix of insanity and busking. But, at the same time, he was also a genius whose many actual contributions to science had also seemed to be, or had been cast by his rivals as, a similar mix of insanity and busking. So, how could you tell for sure just what was what? Immediately after his death was announced, a number of parties interested in getting their hands on whatever might remain of his teleforce, or at least interested in making sure the other interested parties did not, leapt into action. Two of these parties are worth talking about. Mostly one, the American and Yugoslavian governments. The Yugoslavian ambassador at the time was stationed not far away from the New Yorker Hotel, and what's more, he happened to be Tesla's nephew. His name was Sava Kosinovic, and Tesla had shared more about the Teleforce with him than anyone else, at least judging by the letters we have left. When he got the news of his uncle's passing, Kosinovic ran straight away to the hotel, along with a locksmith whom he asked to break into Tesla's safe. From it, he took the memorial book from Tesla's first big birthday bash, which conspiracy theorists, including some within the American intelligence industry, have ever since suspected held the secrets of the still unseen teleforce. Two days later, the FBI asked the Office of Alien Property to impound Tesla's hotel room as well as a storage unit in Midtown. Then they called for an electrical engineer from the National Defense Research Committee to come down from MIT to go over all of Tesla's possessions to see whether the teleforce was in fact real and to make sure that if it was, it ended up in American hands. He went through the collected Tesla papers for two days, a body of work he described as speculative, philosophical, and promotional with no sound workable principles or methods. There was one thing left to check, though. Word came in that the St. Regis Hotel, which had evicted Tesla in 1923 when he had refused to stop feeding pigeons from his window, had a box and a note left over in their vault. The note was a doozy. It said that inside the box could be found a prototype of the Teleforce, 
which Tesla at the time valued at $10,000. But the note also said the box was booby-trapped, and if it was opened without the proper procedure, would explode. As the hotel staff and FBI agents skittered quietly away, the professor went to work, carefully tearing open the brown paper-wrapped box, wondering if this is how he would die. It wasn't. Inside, he found no explosives and no death ray, either. Just an old decade box, a 40-year-old tool for measuring electrical resistance in prototype circuits. It seems that Tesla had boxed up the old junker, along with the note, in order to provide him some collateral from the hotel when his bills got behind. Chalk one up for the Teleforce as Swindle possibility. The reason, by the way, that I'm avoiding naming said MIT professor isn't because you're likely to know his name. Not exactly, at least. But he does get this story to a weirdly serendipitous ending. First, I should note that during the time he was trying to sell Teleforce, Tesla was also a very loudly wrong detractor of a different idea, nuclear physics. Tesla defied Einstein, Bohm, Heisenberg, and the like, believing that there was no such thing as a subatomic particle. Instead, he held to the old dogma that atoms were the smallest unit of matter, immutable and unable to be altered, split, or divided in any way. Unbeknownst to Tesla, a year before the Teleforce birthday party announcement, Enrico Fermi had succeeded in creating the first controlled nuclear chain reaction in an old squash court beneath the University of Chicago, and the Manhattan Project was well underway. So the atomic bomb demolished the death ray in two ways at once. Both practically and theoretically, Tesla was wrong. There were rumors for the next few decades. I could tell more death ray stories for episodes to come, but it wasn't until Reagan and Star Wars that it really came back in style, wasting billions of dollars on a pipe dream that only would have destroyed the world anyway. Ironically, the MIT professor was asked to help build the Star Wars version of Tesla's Teleforce, which he had debunked. He refused on both practical, theoretical, and moral grounds. Perhaps even more ironically, in just the past few years, his nephew once again proposed creating a space-based death ray for shooting down nuclear missiles in exactly the same way that he had refused to work on. See, that MIT professor, National Medal of Science recipient, NDRC subcommittee member, and the man in charge of the American radar system was John G. Trump. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. A special thanks go out to all our Patreon supporters, especially Eileen Tull, Brandon Ray, Donovan Ravenhall, Inbar Meyerson, and especially special thanks to Damian Hoffman. Happy birthday, Damian. You're a natural 20. Keep being curious. If you'd like to support the making of this show financially, go to patreon.com slash the constant and subscribe. If you wish there were a different way to support the show, you're in luck. Just tell a friend. It's the thing that helps us the most. We've got Twitters, we've got Instagrams, we've got Facebooks, God save us, and you can find them all by going to our website, constantpodcast.com. We're a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, 
home to Rumble Strip, the Atlantic's best podcast of 2020. Amazing. Rumble Strip is as hard to describe as it is easy to listen to. And in the latest episode, host Erica Heilman gets a little meta interviewing Jane Lindholm, the host of Vermont Edition, Vermont's local daytime NPR flagship, who just left the job. Go check it out. That's Rumble Strip with Erica Heilman. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where in 1893, Tesla's alternating current was introduced to the World's Fair while Thomas Edison tried to undermine it, this has been The Constant. A Japanese monkey shortage? A Japanese monkey shortage? Japanese monkey shortage. Japanese monkey shortage. A Japanese monkey shortage. Japanese monkey shortage. Japanese. A Japanese monkey shortage. monkey shortage.